Hi, welcome to Aspen Chapel's podcast. Uh, Today, Sunday, the 18th of September. And today's the last uh, of our series of talks on the journey of life. And we begin uh, with a quote from uh, the Dhammapada. This reading is from the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. Better than a thousand hollow words is one word that brings peace. Better than a thousand hollow verses is one verse that brings peace. Better than a hundred hollow lines is one line of the law bringing peace. It is better to conquer yourself than to win a thousand battles. Then the victory is yours. It cannot be taken from you, not by angels or by demons, heaven or hell. Better than a hundred years of worship, better than a thousand offerings, better than giving up a thousand worldly ways in order to win merit, better even than tending in the forest a sacred flame for a hundred years in one moment's reverence for the man who has conquered himself. To revere such a man, a master old in virtue and holiness, is to have victory over life itself in beauty, strength, and happiness. Better than a hundred years of mischief is one day spent in contemplation. Better than a hundred years of ignorance is one day spent in reflection. Better than a hundred years of idleness is one day spent in determination. Better to live one day wondering how all things arise and pass away. Better to live one hour seeing the one life beyond the way. Better to live one moment in the moment of the way beyond the way. I love that idea of the nature of self-mastery being absolutely key in our journey of life. And that's really been the theme that we've been talking about over the last uh, four weeks or so, a little series on the journey of life, which I said last week is not really a journey at all. It's more like a dance with the cosmos. And over the last week, about four weeks, we've been, been looking at that dance in three steps. Obviously, it's a bit like a you know, forward side together, if you, those of you that have ever done the, uh, the wall thing. But the three steps... Um, Really, holding your nerve, first of all, that was the first step, which speaks to sanity, speaks to being able to balance what you're doing in your head and your heart with the circumstances that's out there. Holding what you know to be true in balance. And that's an important thing, just to get yourself in that right place where things are able just to exist. And and then you can move out. The second step, which is really... What we all do is just put one foot in front of the other. You can't stand still in life. You have to move forward. And the idea is really not being attached to the outcome. And we looked last week at the idea of, you know, moving in that sort of way that enables you just to flow with what the circumstances are. And then this week, what we're looking at, the third step, I think, is responding to circumstances, to all circumstances that come up in our lives in a loving way. And I think that's the, you know, the, the third step. 
Um, holding your nerve, stepping out of the boat and not looking down with fear, putting one foot in front of the other. What could possibly go wrong? Harold Macmillan, who's the British Prime Minister in the 1960s, was asked by a journalist, what is most likely to blow governments off course? And he said to reply, events, dear boy. <laughs> events. And, you know, that's true of our own lives. No matter, how, no matter how enlightened we are, no matter how omming we are, events come our way. And it's just about how we respond to those events. As you walk out with your balance just perfectly done, something is going to come and ruin the party. And uh, it's just how you respond. I love, the, I love guru stories. This lovely guru story of the guru that was meditating in his village. And the bandits came in and sacked the village and, you know, killing people left, right and centre. And the, the, the guru just kept on meditating. And the head bandit came up to the guru with his sword. And the guru looked at him and, he, and the bandit saw that he wasn't afraid. And he said, aren't you afraid? Don't you realise that with a blink of an eye, I can run you through with my sword? And the guru looks up at him and says, don't you realize that in the blink of an eye, I can have you run me through with your sword? Just taking responsibility for what's going on. And, uh, you know, we have to do that. The other and lovely guru story about the guru is meditating in his room. And while he's meditating in his room, in in his other room, robbers come in and they ransack the place. They steal everything and they run away with everything like that, and the guru comes out from his meditation, sees everything gone in his room except for a very heavy candlestick, which they left behind. So he picks up the candlestick, and he runs after the robbers, and he catches one of the robbers, and he says, you forgot this. (laughs) I actually, I had that happen in my life once. I I was in London, and I was walking on the pavement to my house, and the car, my car was there, and I saw this bloke, pick up a stone and smash the window of my car. And I just couldn't believe it. So I legged it after him. I started running after him. He tore off down the road. And I ran after him as fast as I could. And then after about three or 400 yards, I realized I was gaining on him. <laughs> so I slowed down. <laughs> I thought, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do if I catch him? You know, it's just not worth it, you know. So... You know, it's terrible. You know, the fact of the matter is, you know, you've got to remember that, you know, life flows and you've got to go with it. You've got to go with life. And, you know, you've got to just do what's going to work and respond. In the, it wouldn't have been, what am I going to do with this bloke? Am I going to beat him up? I mean, that's not, not a loving way. I mean, you just got to let him go. You know, I've got my car back. Anyway, I digress. That third step we're talking about is responding to circumstances in a loving way. And that might not necessarily be the way that our minds tell us is the most advantageous thing to do. You know, the loving circumstance, the loving way we respond to circumstances is not necessarily what our mind tells us is the, love, you know, is the right thing to do. That, those wonderful words of Jesus, which says, says, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt also. Give to everyone who asks, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, 
do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. That's known spiritually you know, as the golden rule, because it occurs in all the major religions. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And that is the essence of responding to all circumstances with love. So, you know, I think you can approach this on two levels. There's, first of all, the rational approach, the rational side of it. In other words, thinking through what needs to be done. That's the first approach. And there's a second approach, which is the essential level, being in a place where we naturally do the loving thing. And I think both of these two aspects are bound up in responding in a loving way. On a rational level, we're confronted with a set of circumstances. And the question we have to ask ourselves with a set of circumstances is what is the loving thing to do here? Whatever the circumstances are, we have to ask ourselves that question. What is the loving thing to do there? And by that I mean, what is going to create the greatest good for all concerned? Not just the greatest good for me. What is going to create the greatest good for all concerned? And for me, the essence of love is bound up with selflessness. The essence of love is bound up with selflessness. It's a verb. It means to give of oneself. To give of oneself. To act out of an awareness of the good of the whole rather than just the good of ourselves. So when we look at it at a rational level, our perspective is bigger than ourselves when we look at it that way. Our perspective is bigger than ourselves. It's also bigger than any one individual. It is a greater perspective that encompasses the good of the whole. How do I respond to these circumstances in such a way that it is for the greater good? That, that, I think, is the rational approach to the concept of the journey of life. And, And you can approach things in that rational way. I'm not sure the most loving approach to the guy who was about to steal my car was one of violence. It wouldn't have been loving for me, and it it just wouldn't have been worth it. And and really, it applies across the board. You know, there is obviously that big question, you know, what was the loving approach to 9-11? And that's a huge question, a matter for debate. What is the loving response to any argument you get into? Or conflict you face? It's always worth asking the question, but it's difficult trying to work out what to do, trying to work things out, you know, in such a way that it often leaves us confused. And I think it's often easier to have one's life driven by love, essentially, so that we naturally respond to a situation when it comes, rather than having to think about it. Because when you have to think about it, it is terribly confusing to work it all out. I mean, Einstein was supposed to have said, I never, make, never made any one of my discoveries through the process of rational thinking. I never made any one of my discoveries through the process of rational thinking. However, I don't think that means we shouldn't think. You can always find a quote to disagree with the quote you've just said. And, uh, and uh, he also said, 
A new idea comes suddenly in a rather intuitive way. But intuition is nothing but the outcome of earlier intellectual experience. So it's all bound up, intuition, experience, intellect, it's all bound up in the same thing. We have to think and be conscious of what we do and to try and live in a way that enables us to respond to circumstances in a loving way. But we can also, I think, engage on an essential level, which is to say we can align ourselves with love in our lives in such a way that it becomes a natural expression for us. Because actually, really, that's what it's all about. You know, it really, on a really essential level, it isn't money that makes the world go round. It is love, in that love is the essential, I think, the essential cohesive force that holds all things together. Love is the essential cohesive force. It's bigger than anything that we think of in terms of men and women or women, anything that's, it is an essential force. You know, the word love appears 551 times in the New International Version of the Bible, and none so powerfully in 1 John 4, verse 8, which simply says, I think it sums it up, God is love. That is the, the essence of it. And however, however we conceptualize the nature of the divine, and we always try, in every, you know, they always try, we always try and conceptualize the nature of the divine, whether it's he or she or it or what it looks like, the essential glue that holds everything together is that love. Something or someone giving of itself in order that we might come into be, in order that all this might come into be. Not only that, but it, the giving is done selflessly. We don't pay to be born. Well, actually, do in America, but that's more healthcare than anything else. <laughs> you don't pay to be born. What I mean is that we're given our lives and we're given the ability to live. You know, the whole world comes gratis. It's given. That, that whatever it is, that Higgs boson particle, that essential DNA, that spiritual DNA that gives us all that we behold, that essential DNA has the properties of love. It is giving of itself freely for the greater good. And, you know, we are receivers of that. And so when we hear the phrase, God is love, what it really means is that we are existing out of the action of what we understand to be love. All that we have, all that we are, all all that is life is existing out of the action of what we understand to be love. And so in truth, our purpose in life is to become part of that wave of love that is creating life, to perfectly cooperate with that wave of love that is creating life. And so, in the old phrase, to become part of the solution rather than the problem, to go with that love. How insane it is to receive the gift of what we have in our lives and then say, well, thanks very much for that, for a start. However, I think that I can take it from here. And I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make the decisions, whether they be good or bad, what's right or wrong, what's good or best for me. But we do that. We, we try and take control. 
We try and make it happen one way or the other. When in reality, what we're being asked to do is to let go of control and become part of that loving way that is evolving life. When we do that, when we express the love that's in us and through us and creating us, we become part of it. We we naturally express love. And as God is love, we also become part of love. So there's an enlightenment aspect of it. As we let go of it, as we become part of that, we become part of God. We realize our divine nature through expressing love. We realize our divine nature through expressing love. Which is why in some cases, you know, we can realize divinity through actions and through what we do. You know, Mother Teresa, whatever you like to say, there's an action that reveals divinity. James says, you know, in, in the Bible, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, who doesn't act in love? Now, I'm not saying that doing stuff is everything, but it's one way of becoming love. And that is the essential way of responding to all circumstances in a loving way, to live one's life in such a way as to become love. We become one with that wave that's breaking the wave that's breaking through evolution, through the years, through the ages, and enabling creation to manifest as it does. We become part of creation in doing that. T.R. de Chardin, who Cynthia is very keen on, uh, Cynthia Bourgeau, said that driven by the force of love, the fragments of the universe continually seek each other so that the world may come into being. Driven by the force of love, it's the same love that we're involved in. The fragments of the universe seek each other so the world may come into being. That is the essential nature and power of love in evolution. And we play a vital part when we become part of love. We become one of those fragments that seek each other so that the world may come into being in love. Because for Tiard, love is not first and foremost a sentiment, let alone a sentimentality. It is first and foremost, in his eyes, a geophysical force. Love as a geophysical force built into the very structure of the cosmos. It is the, the essence of what brings everything into being. He says in the human phenomenon, in all its nuances, love is nothing more or less than the direct or indirect trace marked in the heart of the element by the psychic convergence of the universe upon itself. So in other words, love is nothing more or less than the tiny trace marked in the heart of each atom, each particle by which the universe comes into force. It is the manifesting element that brings everything. And we call that love. And we, we, you know, We bring it right down to the nature of puppy love, you know, in our society. But essentially, it is something deep in everything. And by being love, we become part of love. Not in a sort of sentimental way, but in an essential way. It's why what we do matters. Because what we do affects the cosmic order of things. I always say that, but I think it's so true. What we do affects the cosmic order of things. We are the universe conscious of itself. You know, carbon atoms aren't conscious of themselves, but they still 
create the universe through love. We are conscious of ourselves. And so what we do is incredibly important because we are bringing that force into life. It's why we do what we do, because what we do affects the cosmic order of things. And that may sound a bit lofty, but in the context of the journey of life, it's a natural development. If you've come to your senses and you can hold on to your inner balance, these last two things that we've had, if you can put one foot in front of the other and moving forward without fear of the consequences, then it is natural that you become part of the journey that you're on. Or as we talked about last week, the very wave that you're surfing. You become part of that wave. And that is the essential relationship with love, to become part of that wave. As the universe is blowing through you and you are open to receive what comes your way, so you begin to express love, unhindered by our thoughts or attitudes about what's happening. I always think that it's no coincidence that the tree that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from, the fruit from, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's such an obvious thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we judge everything all the time. We make our decisions all the time based upon that. But when we're open to the what-isness of life without judgment, then we're free to give ourselves unreservedly, without having a view of what's worthy or what's not worthy. And we're free to give ourselves irrespective of the pain that we may or may not be feeling. Because that pain's part of the process. As I said before, it's there to be used as a pointer to love rather than to blame someone else for. Our question should always be, all things considered, this is the question, all things considered, what is the most loving thing I can do to pass on the love that I've received as a part of my creation? What is the most loving thing that I can do to pass on the love that I have received as a part of my creation? We are loved by the cosmos, and our purpose is to love it back in return. That, in essence, is is what life's about. So to live a truly fulfilled life, we have to meet all circumstances, however hard, however painful, however difficult, with the love that brought us into being in the first place. And then our journey of love becomes complete. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us in our hearts and minds out of love and into love. And we thank you for bringing Bunny back to us today. We thank you for healing. Thank you for looking after John and the whole family and that they're here with us now. And we just ask you to bless Bunny as she continues to recover. We do think of all those who are suffering in our community at the moment. First of all, we just think of those people that we know that are suffering people that we have in our hearts and minds, that we can just pass on our love to those people in this moment. And particularly, we think of Philip Hodgson and Patricia Hill, Barbara Orcutt, Will Welsh, Carly Nelson, Maureen and Tom Hirsch, 
Elise Strickland and her husband Carter, John Waller, Erin Tully, Betsy Radcliffe, think of Marsha Morris, Tom Isaacs, Valbrick Karlberg, David Little, and the Kennedy family. We ask you to bless all of them. We ask you to bless our town, those visiting, those working here, the valley, all those coming up and down to work, people in difficult circumstances through language, through their accommodation. Pray for everyone struggling here. We pray for our, our country at the time of election, that you will bring the love in people's hearts out, that they may meet each other, and we may create something wonderful here. Pray for our wonderful world, that green, blue, white orb seen from space, that we may manifest your love here. In Jesus' name. Amen.